It is a nearly universal human trait for us to ask questions. We're not alive for very long, after all, before we discover, even as babies, that the world around us is a hauntingly mysterious place with lots of mysteries to discover and lots of questions to ask. So we ask them, even as children, wondering how the world works, wondering what the answers are to the questions that come to mind, only to discover that as we grow older and older, our questions get bigger and deeper. And so it comes to us that we need to ask questions, questions that are the deepest and most profound and most complicated of them all, questions like, how do I know that I am really loved? What does it mean to truly live? How do I find my purpose in life? Those are the deep questions. And then there are questions that are less profound but even more complicated. Questions like, why is it that the time of day when traffic is slowest, we call it rush hour? Why don't sheep shrink when it rains? Hmm. What, what is the reason that abbreviated is such a long word? Why don't you ever read a newspaper headline that says, Psychic wins lottery? Apparently, I'm the only one to ever wonder that question in the room here today. (laughs) And then there are questions that are the most complicated and the most profound of them all. Where did this world come from? What is the nature of the universe? What will happen at the end of time? And will the Bucks ever win a Super Bowl before we get there? We ask these questions, and so we develop a lot of strategies and techniques to answer them, don't we? We pull every tool and resource at our arsenal to answer these tough questions. We conjure up science and reason. We use metaphysics. We use faith and religion, only to discover that there is not a single technique, not a single tool in our tool belt that can answer all of those questions at the same time. So we employ all of them, and we become a lot like stargazers, staring up into the night sky on countless dreamy nights, wondering about the complexity and the mystery of it all. Stargazers, pondering the big questions, wondering if there are short answers. We become a lot like those stargazers from 2,000 years ago, those, those magi. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's an epiphany, an epiphany, a flash of insight, a quick dose of wisdom that enters into our minds, almost from another world. I mean, that, after all, is what epiphany means. Epiphany comes from two root words that mean into 
and fantasy or dream. An epiphany happens when we get a a dose of wisdom or a flash of insight that enters as if it comes from another world, like from a fantasy or a dream, an otherworldly kind of insight that not only comes into our world and drifts into our minds, but it changes everything forever. And that's why 12 days after every Christmas, we name a day after it. We name a season after it. We call it Epiphany. That moment, that moment when Jesus comes into the scene as a new revelation, as if coming from a whole other world. And suddenly all of those complex and big questions can have short answers. That's why it's perfect to have a series like this during Epiphany. Because during the next six weeks, we will be asking six of those biggest and toughest and most profound questions that we have been asking as a church for centuries. Questions that you might even be struggling with right now. Questions that most assuredly people that you know who don't come to church are asking right now. Questions like, who is God Questions like, how is the Bible true? Questions like, how does God relate to a world filled with suffering and evil? And questions like, who is Jesus Christ? By the end of each service, and in fact, by the end of every one of these sermons, it is our hope that each of these big questions will have a short answer to them. Quite literally, I'll end every sermon with a 60-second timer to summarize what the short answer is to these big questions, not in an effort to suggest to you that these answers are simple, because these, these answers never are. Answers to these big and complicated questions are not simple, but we can make them portable, portable so that you can take this answer and tuck it into your back pocket. And pull it out when you need it. When you find yourself like a magi staring into space, pondering the imponderables of life, you can take out this short answer and be anchored in your Christian convictions. And better yet, you can take this portable answer and share it with someone else. Because most assuredly, you know somebody who is asking the same question and you can be an epiphany for that person by sharing this answer with them. That's the hope of these next six weeks, and it begins with what is perhaps the greatest and biggest question of them all. We begin this sermon series with the profound question, who is God? Back in 1952, the Encyclopedia Britannica published what has to be the most ambitious publishing project in all of the 20th century. It compiled and distributed a 52-volume set that they called The Great Books of Western Civilization. Some of you may have even owned a set for yourself. Thousands and thousands of works 
from Anselm and Augustine all the way to William Shakespeare and Sigmund Freud and Mark Twain, thousands of works compiled in 52 volumes called The Great Books of Western Civilization. And it started with the first two volumes, which were simply the index of topics for the entire set. Two volumes of nothing but the 102 topics that these great works discussed. So basically, if you looked in that index and wanted to look up the term nature, you could discover, cross-referenced all of the authors and all of the books that said anything and everything about nature. You look up the term wisdom in the index and you can cross-reference to find out what Plato said about wisdom. Or what William James said about wisdom. Or what Mark Twain said about wisdom. And what do you suppose, what do you suppose is the longest entry in the entire topical index? The one subject that more authors in Western civilization talked about and wrote about than any other topic? God. God. Mortimer Adler, the great philosopher and editor of this impressive volume, was asked one night on the Larry King program about this very thing. Larry King said, Mr. Adler, why is the topic of God the one that is most addressed throughout Western civilization? You want to know his answer? Mortimer Adler said, Because our consequences for life follow from that one issue more than any other issue you can think of. Because our consequences of life follow more from that one issue than any other issue we can think of. That is a simple answer to a big question. What he's basically saying is the conclusions that we come to about who God is inform every other aspect of our entire existence. Your answer to the question, who is God, shapes what you think. Your answer to the question, who is God, shapes how you behave and how you relate to other people. Your answer to the question, who is God, impacts how you see other people. It dictates whom you love. It even dictates whom you despise. Your answer to the question, who is God, informs the energies that you spend, how you apportion your resources, how you spend your money. Every other subject is a mere footnote to the ultimate question of who God is. And maybe that is exactly what these stargazing magi were pondering 2,000 years ago as they were looking up into the night sky. Now we have to admit that the very idea of God makes our brains hurt, right? That the very definition of God in and of itself suggests that God is greater than our finite and human capacity to even think about God. And in fact, that's after all how Anselm, the great church theologian, defined God. Anselm said that God is that which is greater than anything we can conceive. 
greater than our ability to grasp, greater than our ability to handle. And so when we think about God, our automatic default mode is to try to get a handle on God. We try to break God down into concepts and ideas that we can handle with our limited, finite existence. It's natural for us to do that, to break the concept of God down into pieces that we can grasp. So that's what we do. We personify God. We give God a face, which is why many of us Maybe people here and people throughout history, when they think about God, they imagine the face of a human being. That's why we, we give God human characteristics so that we can relate to God. We think of God as a God who comforts us and who loves us. And we envision God as our co-pilot, Jesus take the wheel, God who is our sidekick. That's why when we think of God, we think of God, a God who favors us ultimately thinking of a God who is on our side. That's what we do, limited, finite creatures trying to grasp an infinite and mysterious God. But you know what? There's a problem with that. The problem comes that the more we try to break God down into bite-sized morsels that we can handle, the more we're actually putting God into a box, confining God with our own definitions and presumed assumptions. The more we try to squeeze this God into a box that we can handle and we can understand, and then, and then the biggest problem of all, because it doesn't take too many more steps beyond that, before we become guilty of the very thing that agnostics and atheists have accused religious people of since the beginning of time. That we have actually done nothing more than created God in our own image. Those atheists like to tell us that in the beginning God created human beings and ever since then humans have tried to return the favor. That's what happens when you put God into a box. Pretty soon, that box becomes a vending machine. (laughs) Or worse yet, that box becomes a justification of our sins and the darkness within our own hearts. I love the way one of my favorite spiritual authors, Anne Lamott, once said it. Said it recently, actually. She said, one good sign that you have created God in our own image is if it turns out that God hates exactly the same people we do. Huh. Go figure. It's true. One of the inevitable consequences of putting God into a box and narrowly defining who God is with no room to change our perception of God or our relationship with God is that ultimately putting God into a box leads to fear. It always does. And so we have churches, we have religious traditions, We have social and political and societal subgroups who have built cottage industries based on that fear. 
because they dare to believe that they have cornered the market on an exclusive view of who God is and how the way the world should work, and so they protect that sole, exclusive, narrow view of God, defensively and narrowly, as if any one of us has ever cornered the market on how God is. And it always leads to fear. It always leads to fear. And if you ever wonder of a personal example of a, who exemplified all of that, all you got to do is look at Herod the Great, one of the main characters in the story that Mary Lou just read for us moments ago. Herod the Great, perhaps as much as any other character in biblical history, had a narrow view of God. Such that when God was born in Jesus that day, Herod could see nothing more in that event than a threat to his throne as an undermining to his well-being, as a threat to his power. And so it sent him down a road of fear. That's what always happens when you put God in a box. It makes you afraid. And it not only made him fearful, it made him manic. It sent him on a rampage. He summoned those magi, lying to them, and called them to go find this Jesus so that he could pay them homage. And when the magi didn't return, when the magi chose instead to go down another road, it sent Herod down a death spiral of paranoia that eventually led to genocide. It's one of the most tragic stories in the entire gospel. When Herod saw this Jesus as a threat to the throne and killed masses of innocent children as a result. And because of that, Joseph, warned by God in a dream, had no other choice but to protect his family, packed up his belongings, took Mary, and took Jesus, and they fled to Egypt, becoming refugees, literally becoming refugees to escape the tyrannical rule and the oppressive times of Herod the Great, refugees just like the ones that we have today just like the ones that the missions and outreach team are trying to assist, just like the refugees that you can read about, and if you look in your bulletin, maybe you can help the missions and outreach team do something about. That's what happens. It's what happens whenever you put God in a box. It raises your fears, and it teaches us to hate. So here's the big question. The big question is not just who is God. The big question is, in what way is God bigger than our boxes? Bigger than our definitions? So I want to share with you two words. Two words upon which this short answer to this big question will be built. Two words that I would say to you are the best Box busters we have. The first word is this. Trinity. Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is impossible to define and explain. And if I've had any kind of trouble keeping you with me so far, I'm totally going to lose you when we talk about the Trinity. 
because there is no way to explain it or define it or conceive it. And you know what? That is exactly the point. (laughs) The fact that we cannot fully explain the Trinity is what makes the Trinity so important. Because it reminds us that God is ultimately beyond our boxes, ultimately bigger than our ability to comprehend it. Because that is what allows for the dimension of reality that is mysterious and awesome and wondrous. Because after all, I mean, if if we could explain how one plus one plus one could equal one, then we wouldn't need God. There would be no God. It is the chief doctrine of the church that prevents us from creating God in our own image because we don't have a clue how it works. You want to know what the other word is? The first word is Trinity. Here's the other word. Jesus. Jesus. Because it is in Jesus that we actually have the fullest and best revelation of this majestic, mysterious, and unknowable God. That if the Trinity reminds us that God is beyond our comprehension, then Jesus reminds us that this majestic God is actually right here with us. God is not only transcendent in the Trinity, God is imminent in Jesus. In fact, that is what Emmanuel means, that God is with us. And so if you want to know this unknowable God, just look at Jesus. If you want to know the mind of this infinite God, then look at the way Jesus acted and look at what he said. If you want to know God's mind and heart and ways, then look at the example of Jesus. And here's what we discover, that Jesus, in fact, lived his whole life busting people's boxes, introducing a new view of God that heretofore had never been seen. And all over the place in the Gospels, Jesus is breaking people's preconceived notions of who God is and is still doing that today. And it's in Jesus that we discover aspects of God that completely blow our minds. God is a God of unconditional love, even for us people who have never experienced it for ourselves. That God forgives us of our sins even though we don't deserve it. That God always sides with the underdog even though we would prefer the people who are powerful and prestigious with a voice. God is always siding with the weak and the voiceless and the least and the lost. And that God, God will stop at nothing, nothing at all to redeem this whole broken and hopeless world and do whatever it takes to reconcile it back to order and that God demands nothing less from you or me than our fullest and truest obedience and surrender. God is not a vending machine. In Jesus, God calls us to surrender and obedience. 
You see, Jesus came to break all of the boxes that we use to define God exclusively. And over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly saying things that, you know what, we wish you had never really said. Jesus, why did you have to say that we have to pray for our enemies? Jesus, why did you have to say that we need to bless those who persecute us? Jesus, why did you have to say that we shouldn't seek to be served but to serve? Why did you have to say that the first will be last and the last will be first? Or that you didn't come, that you didn't come to, to gain your life but to lose it? And that we should take up our cross and follow you. Take it, Jesus. Breaking boxes left and right to call us to a level of faith that we would not otherwise want, let alone give. So there you go. Your short answer to this big question is anchored on two important words. Trinity and Jesus. Because we discover here that God is not only in us and among us and near to us, God is beyond all of us. And that God, God not only is knowable, God is also a mystery. God is not only a person in human form, but God is also beyond our ability to personify that God with a face. And you know what? This is exactly the God that we see in the story of Herod and the Magi. may not have thought of it this way, but the Trinity is at work in the story of the Magi. God the Creator is there. The first person of the Trinity is there. That's the one who, in fact, put the stars in the sky to begin with, created the universe, set the world in order so that when the Magi were looking at the stars, they were looking at God the Creator's handiwork. God the Son was there too. The second person of the Trinity was born in Jesus right there in Bethlehem. And God the Holy Spirit was there as well, symbolized by that star that guided the Magi to a new and fresh experience of Jesus and a new revelation of God, just like that star wants to guide you today. God burst through the boxes. God burst through the definitions that we have clung to that we have used to confine and define God. And this morning and this year, God wants to do the very same in your life. So, here we are at the end of the sermon. And I want to share with you this short answer to this big question, who is God, in less than 60 seconds. Start the timer. <laughs> God is both intimately related to you, but beyond your wildest imaginations. God is knowable through Jesus, but a mystery beyond your comprehension. God has no face, but also assumes the faces of the least and the lost among us. The Trinity defies every box and every definition that we use but also relates to you intimately 
turning your world upside down, changing your lives forever, calling you to a life of forgiveness and love and self-sacrifice. Who is God? God is a God of love, not fear and not hatred. And you belong to that God. And just like the Magi who experienced God in a brand new way on that first epiphany, that same God is calling you home. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are filled with big questions, but you are a big God. And you receive from us our doubts, even our disbelief, and you transform it in yourself in the person of Jesus. Thank you, God, for not leaving us alone. Thank you for being bigger than our expectations and our comprehensions and for calling us to a life, a life of love and a life of peace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.